0: Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. In this episode, I talk to Keith Gessen about the role of journalism in shaping narratives about Ukraine and Russia. Keith Gessen is a journalist, translator, and writer. He's one of the founders of N Plus One magazine. He's also the translator of Kirill Medvedev's It's No Good, Poems, Essays, Actions. His most recent article is Western Journalists in Ukraine, part of N Plus One's special symposium on Ukraine. Here's Keith Gessen. Why don't we start by having you tell a bit about yourself, N Plus One magazine, and your general interest in Russia?
1: Uh, sure. I was, I was born in Russia in 1975 in Moscow and my parents came over with me and my sister, uh, when I was six in 1981. Um, and so, uh, I grew up in Boston and I maintained an interest in Russia and, and Russian literature and, and, um, studied in college and I've been writing about it in, in various forms. Um, ever since getting out of college uh and plus one I started with a few friends in uh 2004 and it's been a really um a great opportunity uh Russia-wise to just uh bring stuff over um and and uh, not have to ask a lot of permission from from people to to publish stuff I mean we do ask permission from the authors but um I'm able to translate stuff pretty quickly and and if the other folks like it, then we put it in the magazine. So, so we've, um, in the first issue, we had the first ever English translation of Sorokin's, uh, Norma, the Norm. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, there's this, it's a very long book and it's got different parts that don't necessarily, uh, cohere or have anything to do with one another, but there's one part about people eating. Um, it's these little short vignettes and in each of them, someone eats this brown substance uh and they take it out of a little packet and they some people kind of take it straight some people put it in their tea some people put it in an omelet um but at some point in every scene uh they have to eat this substance and it and eventually becomes clear that that it's shit and that and it's it, so it's a kind of a metaphor um for soviet life like you you go about your life and everything's you know it's it's ordinary you see friends you have children whatever but then at a certain point you have to eat shit uh Yes. And so, uh, uh, that for, for, I guess, for obvious reasons that had never appeared in English before. Um, and we were able to do that. And, um, then we had some stories by Petrushevskaya who had sort of fallen out of translation. Um, that was really nice. Uh, the, but the big kind of, um, uh, of moment that, uh the, the sort of transformational, uh, uh, moment for, for me, uh, writing about Russia and translating Russian texts was when I found the work of, uh, Medvedev. Um, and it was this moment, I was on a, I guess I was on a reporting trip, uh, which for me is always, a, um, until recently I had two grandmothers over there and, um, and my sister was over there and aunts and uncles. So I sort of, you know, my, I made family visits that were also reporting trips and reporting trips that were family visits. But on one of these, uh, I think in 2006 or 2007, um, I noticed that all the kind of kids that you'd meet those sort of, you know, kids by which I mean, you know, college students or graduate students, um, they were reading Howard Zinn. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, and, you know, and this, 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 in the context of, of course, um, for years, if you were a young person, you know, and, and not starting in 1991, obviously starting in, you know, 1960, right. Um, if you wanted to be a kind of progressive young intellectual, you were, interested in the West and you were interested in the free market. Right. Um, so you had this, you know, at least one generation or two generations of, of kind of, um, free market, uh, fanatics, uh, whatever else, you know, whatever else they thought about life. They, they believed in the free market. Um, and so, uh, at the same time as I kind of noticed this, I, I found this poet, uh, Kirill, um, who was, um who had renounced copyright because didn't want to deal with the um corporate uh, publishers um and had become a kind of uh, heretic of the uh, uh, Russian literary scene um and his you know he,
0: he
1: for me it was a discovery and and he had made this discovery himself he 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 was like you know what was russian um, what was the life around me? What was Russian political thought missing? You know, I, 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 I sensed and, and, you know, literary thought also, he said, I sensed that people weren't really explaining things that were happening around me. And, and I realized, you know, that, that Marxism was missing, that, that this, that the, the, the the school of Western Marxism, which, um, you know, most progressive intellectuals, uh, in the West had gone through, you know, for, uh, 50 years. Um, really didn't exist in Russia. And that was the, it was almost the, the only thing that didn't exist, uh, intellectually. So, um, he had this project both in his poetry and his essays to, um, to, to bring that back into, into Russia. And then he started a, a small press called the free Marxist press, which, um, publishes translations of Western Marxists. Um, and, and so, uh, ever since then, I've, uh, I've kind of been following, uh, him and his cohort and um, trying to think of how would one would approach um, writing about Russia from a,
0: a leftist perspective. Uh, well, let's kind of turn to some of the things you've been doing with N plus one. Now you you have published a lot of Russian literature. You've also published um, some, some Russian kind of political commentary, uh, particularly around the Ukraine crisis. There's been a number of articles and editorials about you know, how to kind of try to understand what was going on there over the last couple of years. And then most recently, N plus one published a special symposium on Ukraine that included, I think, five articles uh, kind of evaluating what's going on there. Uh, What was the genesis of this symposium? And what kind of intervention do you hope it's going to make in the discourse around the Ukrainian conflict? Um, Yeah, it certainly was meant to be an intervention.
1: Um, I feel like it's been uh, it's been two years now um, since my dawn, and the hope World. some voices together um, who had been speaking in different uh, publishing in different venues uh, at different times. Um, you know to to push back a, a little bit on the narrative of um, the you know uh, wonderful revolution of dignity, um, the nasty Russians uh, and, um, you know, the, um, totally Russia created uh situation in Ukraine, um, to put it uh, very crudely. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, all, you know, even as I say that stuff, I'm like, well, some of it is true. Right. Um, but you know, t- just to, just to gather some people in, 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 a, in one place and see if we could, Um, have some, you know, critical leftist, um, uh, but not really uh, orthodox leftist uh, viewpoints on Ukraine. So, um, but, you know, more concretely, there's a piece by Tony Wood that we were talking about, about um, neoliberal reforms, uh, what those have started to look like in Ukraine, um, and what those have look like in other places, Um, he has a a kind of clever argument that, well, if, if, you know, the thing we really don't want Ukraine to become is uh, Putin's Russia, um, then perhaps neoliberal reforms are the last things that we want to impose on Ukraine, given the fact that it was neoliberal reforms that gave birth, um, to Putin's Russia. Uh, so, you know, whether or not you accept that argument, I, you know, I think it's, it's a very important thing to say, um, that. Uh, these reforms that, you know, no longer, people don't even call them neoliberal reforms. They just call them reform. Uh, and they're always a good thing. You know, it's always just not questioned. You know, so the question is, is Ukraine uh, carrying out the reforms, right? And if the answer is no, that means Ukraine is doing badly. And if the answer is yes, then that means Ukraine is uh, progressing. Um, but he asks the question, uh, you know, is, are these reforms good? Um, have they been good in other places? And the answer mostly is no. Uh, Mostly they reduce the capacity of the state. Um, They lead to capture of resources by a small group of insiders. Um, Obviously, we saw this in Russia. Uh, We've seen it in a lot of other places also. So um, I, you know, personally, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Obviously, some places have prospered um, after going through reforms, right? Uh,
0: But a lot of places have not. So... Um, I think, you know, I think it's an important argument to make. Well, one of the things I thought from his essay that I was interesting and kind of posing this, well, if you want to avoid, I mean, just kind of what you said, if you want to avoid uh, Ukraine ending up like Russia, well, maybe neoliberal reforms aren't the one right thing because that's what led to Putin. Um, I I also saw this him challenging the kind of tautological argument that, well, if you do these types of reforms, you will automatically get like a certain type of liberal democracy. Uh right? I mean which we, we just
1: haven't seen that. I mean you of, you often get uh, state failure, right? Um and yeah, so so it, you know, I mean I guess the kind of goal is to to pry apart some of these um ideas that have come stuck to you know, become sort of stuck together, right? Where uh, if you have a revolution against A nasty kleptocratic regime. um, Will you automatically get a uh, wonderful liberal democratic one? Um, You know, just just to to go back a little bit uh, about my own interest in Ukraine. I um, mostly have been visiting Russia for the last uh, twenty years, and. Um, I was born in Russia, but, uh, I had been to Ukraine a, a few times and I went there in 2010, um, without, uh, really, I just kind of went there on vacation. Um, and I noticed, um, something that I didn't know, you know, I, I'd read about the orange revolution right, and about Yushchenko and how wonderful this was. And I knew that it hadn't quite worked out uh, very well. um, but what I learned when I spent a little bit of time there, and especially it was during this presidential campaign, which led to Yanukovych being elected, um, was that Yushinko had, you know, spent much of his energy and time and resources on, um, having this kind of memory war, uh, where he, you know, resurrected the, um, heroes of the Ukrainian resistance, um, whom a lot of people consider fascists because they collaborated with the Nazis. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he had really kind of, uh, you know, in in a way pulled the country apart a bit. Um, certainly he wasn't the only one doing this, but it was something that I had not, uh, read about. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it was basically like the, if you were just a kind of ordinary consumer of. Uh, the news in the West, you you, you knew about the Orange Revolution. Uh, You knew that he and Timoshenko had had a falling out. Um, And that was it. And it was just, so it it kind of opened my eyes to this, this, uh, you know, the the whole problem of the post-Soviet states um, where, you know, and, and, you know, once I, once I knew that in Ukraine, so basically, you know, the, 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 the problem was that they were, trying to push away from Russia, Yushchenko's kind of, you know, overall goal was to to push away from Russia and to push toward the West, right? And that's why he's always referred to as a pro-Western politician. Um, And in the process of doing so, you uh, highlight the crimes of Russia against your country, and you uh, rehabilitate um, some of your Nazi collaborators. Um, And this has been happening all over, right? Uh, All over Eastern Europe, um, certainly in the Baltics. And, uh, well, it's just very interesting and, and, and even, you know, but to go back to the question of the reforms, right. Um, you know, so when we, when we say pro-Western, um, this can mean all sorts of things. And, you know, in, in, in some instances, what it actually means is, you know, anti-Russian, um, anti-socialist, uh, pro-Western in a kind of bad way you know, pro-Nazi collaboration, um, pro, um, you know, uh, austerity. So, I don't know. So, uh, just to,
0: to, I guess the idea of the symposium was to try to start asking some of these questions. And also, too, some friends of mine who are more uh, plugged into this memory war that began after the Orange Revolution and now is really continuing full-fledged now, is uh, the role of the Ukrainian diaspora. Uh, particularly from Canada and the United States and kind of, you know, translating certain things or publishing books, uh, rehabilitating certain historical figures, particularly those in exile, um, and kind of having a role to play in the shaping of the that memory politics in Ukraine, which I think is incredibly interesting um, on, on many levels. Um,
1: yeah. There's a historian, um, John Paul Himka. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's, you know, they, the diaspora hates his guts.
0: Right. Um, he's their sort of, you know, he's their like Noam Chomsky. <laughs> yeah, I actually had him on a podcast uh, several months ago.
1: Oh, great. Okay. I got to listen to
0: his... that. Yeah. He's... So, but your, your article, you focused on, for your contribution to the symposium on the, the role of the, the Western journalist uh, in, in Ukraine. And what inspired you to, to begin thinking critically about the place of this figure um, as a medium for the conflict, as somebody who kind of communicates the meaning or the information passes through. Uh,
1: I mean, you know, I guess a number of things. I mean, I am a you know occasional Western journalist um, who goes to Russia and Ukraine, so that's part of it. Um, I mean, also just just this, the the past two years um, where suddenly Putin, who was always himself, (laughs) um, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, he is just the biggest monster, um, since Saddam Hussein, um, just to watch this kind of build in the media, um, I, I think it's an, an interesting question. I mean, I I think sometimes the media thinks of itself or certainly individuals in the media think, you know, think, well, I don't, I don't really influence policy, right. Um, I just write down, you know, what I saw and it gets published and then, you know, nobody really cares. Right. Um, I think even people writing for the times, you know, don't, don't really think very much, um, of how important their, their work is for the formulation of American public opinion and then American, uh, public policy. So, um, you know so you so you if you if you start watching how this you know so the past two years I've just been watching how um you know you get this kind of feedback mechanism where um you know articles are published about how horrible Putin is then you know re- politicians begin to respond to this um then the russians feel like they need to respond to that um and then you get another article about how nasty uh Putin is you know it starts all over again and and just, just watching that happen, um, talking to people who I think are thoughtful and uh, people about whom I agree uh, about many, many things, certainly in do- uh, domestic American politics. Um, so talking to my liberal friends. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it used to be this way in a slightly different kind of, um, in, in, in a slightly different way with, with Israel. Or you would talk to someone um, who had kind of leftist views, and and you would agree with, with them about everything. And then, you know, when it came time to talk about Israel, they they would um, you would find them defending Israel, uh, and uh, even though even though it went against all their beliefs, really, it, this kind of uh, exception. Um, and I feel that way about Russia now in the opposite way, where you have very reasonable uh liberal left liberal people um you agree with them about everything, and then suddenly, when it comes to Russia and Putin, um they just kind of lose their heads a little bit and they're like, well, of course he's a murderer and a you know monster and um whatever it takes <laughs> Basically. um so so yeah, so just just watching that happen and then um. As I write in the article, I mean, I guess the, the other thing that I've watched happen over the years is, um, you know, the the people who who uh, write about Russia, who work on Russia, um, they love Russia, <laughs> right? I mean, they they've learned Russian, right? Sean, you you. Learned Russian, right? You know it. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even have, I knew Russian already. My commitment to this. Is, yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> well, yeah, and like, <laughs> have to go and and learn it. You know, it's so so. Anyone who has kind of taken the trouble to to do that and, um, you know, travel to this country that isn't very pleasant, frankly, um, right? It's
0: <laughs> in some ways. Well, it's not always. It's not so. like a, not Italy. Yeah, right. But I, I like I like being there. But that maybe that's me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it. Yeah. It ha, I mean, there's things about it that are great. But it's it's not a well. It's it's not Italy. Okay. So, um, you know, I just I just I just think it's you know, uh, even you know, someone like um, Victoria Newland, right? She's a Russophile. I mean, she she's in, she loves Russian literature. Um, and then so so you have this phenomenon of of people, um, going over there who. I've learned Russian, really love Russian literature. And then they, uh, you know, for various complex reasons, they start, you know, filing these reports or writing books,
0: um, about how horrible things are in Russia. Um, and do you think, do you think that there is a, you know, I, I mean, I, I've thought a, a lot about similar things that you're bringing up. Um, and you know, and I, I read a lot of stuff in, in the Western press. Well, I have to admit that I I read it less and less nowadays, but, um, when I do read it, I do read some things that I think are quite good. There is some really good journalism out there. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain discursive trope. There are certain tropes that are kind of repeated over and over again, um, that I find really kind of strange and interesting. Um, like, for example, and then sometimes they contradict one another. So, for example, Russia is kind of this, you know, um, imperialist uh, expansionary power, but at the same time, it's weak and crumbling. Right. <laughs> right. Um, Putin is, is in control of, of, of the country and everything has to pass through him, but he is a weak ruler on the verge of collapse. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um. There, there is these kind of, and there's also there was a wonderful article published. I forget who is the author, but it was maybe two or two years ago. On um the the title of it is Russia's Eternal Collapse, which which looked at the discourse of Russia's collapse really from the 19th century.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um and and charted this up up into the present. And there's also another wonderful book, um by um a historian. That looks at it's called the American Mission in the Evil Empire huh. by Fourlegzong, David Fourlegzong. It's a wonderful book because it looks at the history of the United States and Russia, and Russia as the American dark mirror, and how there's this this effort to this discourse of liberating Russia since the late nineteenth century to the mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's a it's a fascinating study, but it, it Russia plays this role. I think in particularly in American discourse um, of this kind of decaying or co- eternally collapsing. I mean, every couple of weeks you can see an article about how Russia is about to collapse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't really understand that um, this discourse.
1: Huh? I, uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I do, I do think Russia and the U S have a lot in common, um, just cause they're big and, and messy and, and, um, you know, the, the, the Russian, I mean, you do, you do go over there and sometimes wonder how anything works. It doesn't seem like a very well organized place. Um, you know, these, it's true, right? Putin is either omnipotent or he's, you know, um, nothing. He's a nothing (laughs) or, or, you know, he's a genius. Sometimes he's a genius. And other times he's, you know, um, just a monster, (laughs) right? Is he a monster genius? Um, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, you know, the, the question, the, I guess the question is, you know, I, it, so I think there's like a, a couple of things at work. I mean, one of them is a kind of, um, you know, you spend a, enough time there and, and you start really kind of writing not for, but from a kind of, from a Russian perspective. Right. And I, and I, and I think in a way that if, for journalists, this has actually accelerated in the last 20 years. I mean, the, the journalists used to live in, uh, Compound, right? Um, you know, in the, in the Soviet times, they had a compound for the journalists, and they kind of, you know, they were watched a little bit, right? Um, so they weren't really—they they, kind of lived a separate life um, from from people in Russia. Whereas now, they just kind of live; they rent an apartment and um, pretty much like everybody else. And so, I think the the kind of tendency to identify um, becomes know, the temptation to identify with the nice Russian liberals that you, you know, socialize with, right, becomes very strong. Um, And so then you're sort of writing these articles that um, voice the, you know, complaints and the desires of of the, you know, Russian uh, upper middle class.
0: At the same time, you know, I, I feel for journalists i'm not a journalist myself but i can understand what the daily grind is like and that is you know you have to produce a story you know you need some quotes so you go to the people that are readily available and those are the people you know or have been in contact with in the past so you kind of tend to reproduce the the same discourse you would otherwise because you're under a lot of pressure to produce material quickly uh sure Yes. (laughs) And
1: well, but you know, but I guess I I, I wouldn't, I mean, I feel like, you know, we're talking about journalists and it's kind of easier to talk about for me to talk about them, but I feel like, do you not feel that this is true also of academics in the U.S. working about on Russia?
0: Um, Academics to a lesser extent, because the process of producing academic work, um, you know, for academic journals or academic publication. does it has a longer span of time not that's not to say that this doesn't happen, of course, um but the pressures are different I,
1: I, right no, I guess I mean um, that you know for me, the you know journalists and academics and policymakers who work on russia, right um, with some exceptions, um seem to me all part of this sort of complex of, um, people who like Russia, um, and for, you know, but create this kind of discourse where, uh, you know, Russia is bad. uh, Oh, Russia is dangerous. Um, and Russia is, or, and, and, or Russia is collapsing. (laughs) Right. 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 You know, I mean, um, so, you know, if that's true, then it's not just a matter of time pressure. It's, Else going
0: on. No, I'm not I'm, I certainly don't deny the fact of this kind of overarching discourse about the place. That's absolutely true. Um, and you know, in, in scholarship, you you definitely have this tendency as well. Um, you have a tendency of 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 looking at the the place. So for example, in, in for a long time in, in Russian historical studies, it was about like trying to find the beginning of the end of the Soviet system uh-huh. right So instead of kind of writing about you know how this the system actually functions, you have a tendency to emphasize its failures because those failures at a certain point in time point to the ultimate failure right right Or you have a you know historical kind of tradition of looking at instances of resistance. Um, which were for complex questions but one of which was to look at when there was the beginning of some sort of pushback uh, that would eventually lead to certain either reforms or ultimately to the collapse of the system
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm.
0: so th- that that certainly determined a lot of research and I think to some extent continues to determine a lot of research questions for sure
1: yeah um yeah and so you you know the the question of uh, Although isn't, I mean, isn't there, I feel like with the Soviet,
0: now that the Soviet era kind of recedes into the past, there's more and more revisionist work. There is, there is a lot more revisionist work. I, I think that trend is, is the trend that I was speaking about is, is shifting. And there is a lot of revisionist work and kind of a looking, looking at things, uh, in a different light. And, and, uh, you know, those are certainly welcome changes, but I think that there are, um, and and I, I have to say those changes are coming from younger scholars for the most part, who you know have less kind of tainted eyes maybe I, <laughs> if I could say that. But you know that that's you know it, it's it's complicated of course. Um, yes.
1: Um. And yeah. And so you know. But you know, I'm thinking in particular. I'm you know. I, I'm not up as up on it as. As I should be, and as you are, but like like the
0: Yurchak book, right? Right. So Yurchak, that's a you know kind of revisionist history of late Soviet. Absolutely, and that has that book has had had um, everything was forever until it was no more. Uh, that ha- book has had a tremendous impact uh, across disciplines on how people understand the late Soviet period in particular, for sure.
1: Great. Well, so yeah, so we need a we need a kind of more
0: revisionist um, you know history of the present. Day, I guess I think what I'm. Yeah, sir, I, I, there's definitely always room for that, absolutely. But, but we should state, you know, on the other side, in your article, you also point to, you know, this kind of new crop of journalists. This, you, you label them the so-called truth journalists, who have no real kind of intellectual or personal affiliation with Russia, who have kind of dropped parachuted into Eastern Ukraine and are doing something else uh talk about them a bit
1: uh sure yeah so you know there was um kind of a infamous guy named Graham Phillips um who was uh kind of a sex pat living in uh odessa and um you know writing him uh, from he was from britain and he was he wrote a blog about um, you know his kind of love affairs and his uh and and his love of soccer those two things and um and then, uh, the conflict started and he started writing more, I, I'm sorry, Maidan started as before there was a conflict. Um, and he's you know, he started writing about Maidan a bit and I guess Russia Today, uh, noticed, uh, one of his blog posts and had him on, um, you know, cause they're always looking for English language speakers who share the views of Russia Today. And, right. uh, Graham was, uh, you know, a skeptic of Maidan. So, um, you know, so then he became, um, you know, he kind of got a taste of the media uh, attention and, and then he eventually went over to Eastern Ukraine and um, started making these videos where he, uh, you know, tried to provide a sympathetic view of the rebel cause. Um, and uh, then I happened to meet um, another guy named Patrick when I was over in Donetsk in the summer of 2014 and um you know patrick was doing something similar where he would go out and film a smoking crater or uh, an interview with you know a a rebel fighter and um you know and and patrick would say are you from russia and the fighter would say, no, I'm Ukrainian. And Patrick would say, really? Show me your Ukrainian passport. And the guy would show him his Ukrainian passport. And this would prove, you know, uh, that there was no Russian <laughs> presence. Um, so this would supposedly prove that there was no Russian presence uh, in Donetsk. So, uh, you know, and and I, I found these guys really interesting. I mean, partly, uh, you know, partly because they were these guys who didn't really know. I mean, so Graham um, has this uh, kind of... Um, Broken Russian that he speaks in, and and he can sort of be understood, um, and, and, but it's kind of very, it's very funny, and um, so and, and and this other guy Patrick didn't, didn't know Russian at all or Ukrainian, um, and you know, um, but they were able to produce this this kind of media coverage. Um, however, you know, Western uh, outlets were not interested, so they ended up selling the stuff to Russia today. Um, and eventually ended up selling more stuff to Russia today and more and more stuff. And you ended up with these kind of, um, you know, a Brit and American doing, um, what could be described as Russian propaganda. Um, I found that, (laughs) I found that interesting. Um, now there, there were certainly, uh, pro Ukraine ignoramuses also, you know, at Maidan, right. You could meet people like that there. Um, but, uh, they were somehow less, uh, you know, there was so much media on the other side, right, Um, that that was, they sort of got drowned out. Um, You know, and and so my, my, you know, the question that I put to myself was, well, are Graham and Patrick, are they very different from uh, Vice, which was doing, uh, Vice News, which was doing kind of similar reporting, um, meaning, you know, digital cameras, right, Um, and doing it very quickly. uh, Now, and, and Vice was... Uh, the, the people doing it uh knew Russian, um they uh were highly professional, they had some resources, um, they did a really good job, right? Yeah. Um and but their their uh point of view was certainly um you know certainly pro-Maidan um you know anti uh, East. Um and you know so uh how much of a difference was there, right, between these two sets of in in their methods or or no, or just, or no in, in their, you know, in the result or the, you know, ultimately what, you know, what one thinks of them. Right. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I guess, uh, you, you know, in, in the, uh, symposium, Nina Patarska, who's a Ukrainian, uh, leftist activist, you know, she says, ultimately my country has once again become a battlefield for two imperialisms. Right. And I think ultimately that's true, you know, and, and one of those imperialisms is much cruder and, and um, you know, nastier in certain ways. Uh, I mean, the Russian one, uh, but the other one is is just as real and, and uh, just as much of a problem for the people who end up kind of um, in its way. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so for me there was this vice, this interview that, that Simon Ostrovsky of vice did with the American ambassador Um, we didn't ask him a single difficult question, um, and did not ask him about his infamous phone call, uh, with Victoria Nuland about, uh, who should be in the new government of Ukraine after Maidan, Um, and just in general, it really kind of highlighted to me how little reporting that, you know, there's been so many reporters over there, um, whether they were, you know, uh, super smart and, and well-prepared or, or not. Right. just a lot of people over there doing you know often very amazing and courageous things um and how little of their attention uh even though many of them were american or or british how how little attention they focused on american actions um in ukraine and and I know it's a kind of leftist cliche uh, to say, well, what about, you know, you know, American corporations? What about the State Department? Um, well, what about those things? I mean, I would love to know more.
0: Right. I, I have to say that, you know, in the last couple of months, there's been a number of reports. I don't know how, you know, substantiated they are, but it, reports in Ukrainian media about the role of Piat and other American officials in the back rooms kind of making certain demands and requests on things, you know, on reforms, or even staff positions and things like this. I mean, this is being, you know, in the Ukrainian press. um, And I'm surprised that no one has picked this up and tried to delve into it a little bit more. Maybe the stories are, you know, completely worthless. I don't know. But it's certainly a question because, you know, that comes up.
1: Yeah. And well, and I mean, I think that I think it's been true since the beginning that they've that the U.S. has been um, very involved in, you know, and that doesn't mean that they planned Maidan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, they you know, it, 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 I don't think there was even well, I don't know if there was finance, if they I don't know if there was some USA way to get money to Maidan. I don't know. But um, I don't think it was a big USA plot. Right. Um, but you do have this phone call. <laughs> um, you know, where they're discussing who should be in the government. I don't think it was up to Victoria Newland, right, and who got to be in the government, Uh, but certainly the U.S. was, you know, at the table all all the time. Um, Yeah, and so, you know, I I think there's almost like a kind of um, structural problem where, you know, journalists are sent to report on Ukraine, right, or on Russia. So if you're in Russia, you report on what the Russians are up to, Um, but that seems to be a mistake because, um, especially in this situation, I mean, you know, what is the, you know, you're, you're writing for American readers, right? Um, they are, you're not writing for the, uh, you're not a state department, um, or or CIA analyst, (laughs) right. Um, who needs to give, uh, policymakers, um, you know, actionable information, right? You're writing for uh, U.S. readers, U.S. citizens, um, who ought to know what, you know, who, who, and who I think would be curious to know what their government was up to. Uh, and it just doesn't seem to be in the kind of field of vision. Um, you know, I, I, keep, I keep thinking about that. Uh, there was this military base that the U.S. had in Kyrgyzstan.
0: Um,
1: I never read anything about that uh, in, you know, or until they closed it. Then, you know, when they U.S. soldiers were kind of packing up. There was a little article in the Times, but this was like a hugely destabilizing um, thing in in Kyrgyzstan, right? You had this big military base with a lot of U.S. soldiers. The Russians were really mad about it. Um, I think initially they supported it, then eventually they got really mad about it. Then they would, you know, they they kept trying to bribe. There were these kind of, you know, not bribes, but like loan guarantees, right, that to the government of Kyrgyzstan, which is fairly, was, which was unstable to begin with. Right. Um, So you had this like incredibly destabilizing U.S. presence um, and you just didn't read about it. Not that you read a lot about Kyrgyzstan, but it's it's just like like the sort of thing that um, we don't for some reason see
0: um, as, um, you know,
1: American journalists or American
0: academics. We go over there, Though, though, at the same time, we have to say, like, from the other side, you know, the the Graham Phillips and and others. I mean, their attempt to you know they kind of see themselves as a corrective to this, right? But they don't provide a corrective. They provide yes, just, just the kind of you know mirror opposite of this type of portrayal.
1: Yeah, and I mean, well, and that's the, I mean, I, I, like we said, of all of us, <laughs> right? I mean, you you do end up getting it. I mean, we've we've all watched Stephen Cohen the past years old, uh try, you know. Like I feel like with Cohen, he's kind of, in general, he's right, but all the specifics he's wrong. He's wrong. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a it's a problematic position. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, you get you know, I mean, everybody, I mean, those those two guys in particular are not really they're not they don't they're not qualified to 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 do a good job, right? Um, and well, but you, you you could say well, it it's kind of indicative of the situation that. Um, you know, the the only two guys are, are, who, who have taken it upon themselves to, to make this corrective are these kind of clowns. Um, but, but everybody gets, you know, and I find myself always getting, you, and you must feel the same way. Like you, you start arguing against, you know, you start criticizing the U S position and all of a sudden you're, you're defending Putin. Right.
0: Which is incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, and you, and you know, it's, that's, that doesn't, that's no good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it And I think, I think this goes to the heart of the problem, at least for me kind of intellectually over the last year or so in, in trying to think through a lot of this stuff is how do we break out of the binaries? Because I think this is one of the things that, you know, in general, what we've been talking about now is, is everything has become polarized and the discourses become polarized um the binaries have become polarized and here i'm thinking this kind of like now this renewed clash between russia and the west versus liberalism and authoritarianism um there's even now in in, in ukraine the the fight the renewed fight against you know communism and communist symbols in terms of decommunization um and and i find this interesting that ukraine has become the new site of liberal modernity at the same time when the kind of liberal project seems to be faltering in the United States and in the EU and certainly in the Middle East and all of the kind of um, enthusiasm around the Arab Spring has has basically turned on its head or really the, the bringing democracy to the Middle East that started in, you know, 2003 has turned on its head. Um, you know, what do you think in w- what way do you think the Maidan Revolution has become a means to reignite this kind of liberal dream of an end of history, that the the, mar- the renewed march of kind of liberal democracy and neoliberal capitalism? Um, yeah, well, you're. I mean, I, I think you've said it very well, <laughs>
1: right? I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, that's right. The the European project, right? Um, I mean, you, you read these you read these articles about how, you know, Putin is, has undermined, um, you know, the European, well, he, you know, and he has undermined this European security arrangement, right? And, and, and one of the worst things that he's done is, um, you know, kind of give, given NATO this renaissance, this this gift, right? Um, I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember um, about, uh, you know, Two years ago, right before Maidan, um, I mean, while Maidan was going on, but but hadn't uh, exploded into um, revolution, right? Um, before Yanukovych left and before Crimea was invaded, uh, I think it was the Secretary of Defense or the Chief the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, saying, you know, we still we have an army that's still ba- predicated on fighting Russia, but that's that's irrelevant, right? And um, you know, this is a month or two before the invasion of Crimea. Right. So so what a wonderful thing that Putin has done for NATO and and the U.S. military. Um, It's one of his that'll that should count as one of his crimes. Um, But uh, wait, how did I how did I get on that? Um, Oh, yeah. So I mean, so the European project. So we we hear so much about how Putin has has, you know, is is intent on destroying the European project. But obviously, the European project has um, a lot of problems right now. Right. And uh, I mean, we watched the the kind of blackmail of Greece um, that took place. Right. That was that was bad. Uh, that wasn't very European uh, in the sense that people who talk about Europe all the time like to like to use it. Um, yeah. So so it does it does seem like a lot of um, things are being projected onto Ukraine um, that aren't uh, necessarily. Um, well, they're not necessarily helpful to the Ukrainians. You know, I remember uh, right after Maidan um, and right after the invasion of Crimea, I was in Kiev and I was talking to a, a very intelligent, uh, well-informed uh, liberal journalist, and he said, "You know, um, we, we, you know, we fought for this, we did this, and now Putin comes along, and you know, would it really be so hard to set up a no-fly zone for Ukraine?" and uh, you know, would it really be so hard for the U S to do that? And I just thought, are you, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's crazy. Right. And, but just the idea that somebody who is re, you know really quite well informed, right. Um, would, would, would receive that signal somehow um, from the U S or, you know, from the West, that that was something that could happen. I mean, I think that's, that's a, that's a problem. Um, yeah, I, I had to break out of the binary. I I don't I don't I don't know. I mean, I think again, you know, um Nina Patarska in her piece um you know at the end of it she says you know, uh ultimately this is a country, you know, where a quarter of the population lives on less than $4 a day. Um I guess you know, keeping keeping that in mind um would be helpful, right? um and you know i feel like once yeah once you once you get kind of pulled into these arguments about putin and nato and all that it gets um you're no longer really you're not really thinking
0: about those people and 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 the really effects of all this stuff right which are real i mean the 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 refugee um the the collapse of the hryvnia the unemployment i mean you know for example uh, until i think a few days ago there was a major uh, protest of minors in Lvov who weren't being who had wage arrears for several months. Uh, I just saw the statistics on wage arrears in Ukraine is enormous. Um, there's a lot of kind of social problems that are going on um, that I think requires some putting into some attention for sure and put it into some context um and 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 especially in regard to the reforms that are being kind of demanded on on the country so uh and finally um you know as, as you said at the beginning of the interview you know much of your critical analysis comes from a left perspective and and what you've been trying to do in your writings not only on Ukraine but also on Russia in particular you're trying to find you know what how should you know someone who identifies himself politically on the left how do we analyze this place and, and I think that, you know, good critical leftist analysis of Russia in general and in, in Ukraine in particular has been wanting, um, you know, you get this unfortunate phenomenon of leftists kind of, you know, arguing for the positive impact of Putin um, on the, you know, in kind of this, what's called the anti-imperialist left, uh, taking very strange positions uh, defending, you know, Putin's foreign policy. It's very strange to me. So what would be your kind of suggestion of how do we understand what's going on in that region, um, from a leftist perspective and how do we fit it into kind of a general global capitalist, um, you know, environment or context, (laughs) not to put you on the spot. (laughs) Oh man.
1: (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's a little beyond, it's a little beyond my brief, but, 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 you know, I, I do think, well, you know, a couple of things, like I, I do feel like, um, I want to, I, I want to say on the one hand one wishes like one wishes people on the left, um, were more, uh, comfortable, uh, talking. Well, I don't know if that's I, what I wanted to say was, you know, I, I, a lot of my friends, um, they're like, well, I don't know anything about Russia or Ukraine. So um, I'm not really going to uh, write about this or talk about this, right? Um, on the other hand, but the, the problem with, you know, and I, so I want to say, well, no, you, you know enough, right? You, you, you've, you your eyes are open, so you, you know enough to, to, to think about it. But on the other hand, of course, you do have um, this problem, you know, on, on, on both sides of the political st- spectrum, but it, it's particularly upsetting on the left where people really don't know enough and... Um, end up taking positions like, you know, I, the fascist hunter uh, position about Kiev is just not helpful. Um, although, nor was Timothy Snyder's insistence that there was no, um, you know, right wing presence on Maidan, right. or that it was totally marginal, and negligible, and that's just that's just not true. Um, so, I don't. I mean, you know, uh, Perry Anderson had that long article in the New Left Review a few months ago. What did you think of it?
0: I thought it was, I, I had some disagreements on some of the particulars, um, particularly his discussion of, uh, at the end of Russian nationalism, I thought was kind of veering off into a direction I didn't really understand. Um, but uh, I thought the analysis was quite interesting and, and provocative. Um, I mean, his stuff, his writing on Russia over the last couple of years, he's done a, some, he's done, did it one article in New, New Left Review. And then a couple of pieces in uh, the London Review of Books that I thought were were quite solid.
1: Yes. Oh no. I yeah. I I, I guess I I felt like there was a dis- he made a division between basically optimists and pessimists, <laughs> which which I found unhelpful. It, it seemed like a not a political division. Um. I don't know. So so you know. So one thing that the Russian left has taught me um is you know you have to understand Putin as a continuation. Uh, and Tony writes this in his piece in, in the symposium, you know, it, it's a continuation of the 1990s, not a rejection. Um, and, you know, whereas, you know, Putin both wants you to think that he's a rejection of the 1990s and most uh, Western commentators also, right, that in the 90s you had democracy and capitalism and uh, uh, since then under Putin you've had authoritarianism and uh, it's the opposite of capitalism, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, whereas, in fact, um, a lot, you know, um, a lot of the reforms have continued, uh, you know, and, and in fact, just in the past couple of years, right, uh, we've seen, we've seen doctors uh, getting uh, cut and and uh, education, right, there's been medical and, and educational reforms, um, these wonderful reforms that uh, are also going to be imposed on Ukraine, right. So, Um, I think that's a very important thing to understand, um, is the, is the continuity. Um, you know, another thing that the Russian left taught me was that they are basically a, um, you know, a, a large country on the periphery of the world system. (laughs) Um, and that, uh, you know, the, the sort of things that are happening there are the sorts of things that happen on the periphery of the world system. I think that's still true. Um, And in a way, I mean, in a way, the kind of Goldman Sachs analysis, right, of the BRICS, oh, sorry, Um, you know, in a way, uh, you know, so the world systems analysis kind of um, converges with Goldman Sachs, right? I mean, Goldman Sachs calls these countries the BRICS. Um, That's the same thing as saying that they're on the periphery of the world system, right? Uh, Or something similar, right? Um, And... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where that, I don't quite know where that gets us, Uh, but, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the beginning of something.
0: That was Keith Gesson, founder of N plus one magazine and author of Western journalists in Ukraine as part of N plus one special symposium on Ukraine. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia blog. Until next time. Goodbye.
1: Моя моросечка, моя ты куколка, моя моросичка, моя ты душенька, моя моросичка, А жить так хочется, я весь горю тебя, моя любовь моей, женой.